Weeping Cedars is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to help us keep telling our story, please share our show with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes and Spotify. And if you'd like some extra content, head over to patreon.com slash weepingcedars, where you can sign up for monthly updates, the Weeping Cedars newsletter, and the sticker of the month. You'll also be able to hear the season one and a half show, Lapping Cedars, with local real estate agent Eli Ford. And if you're already a patron, or have already shared our show with your friends, thank you so much for your support. Gleason Cabin stands at the corner of Bierce and Main. Its old logs are free of bark and stacked two stories high. Its cedar-shingled roof was most recently repaired in 2012, perhaps for the last time. It looks out over two or three streams, depending on who you ask, and a pond that shares its name. The date of the cabin's construction is uncertain, and neither tradition, nor historical record, nor the tools of archaeology can agree on when it was erected. The earliest records refer to it simply as the cabin, Gleason cabin, or as one letter puts it, the Gleason house. Its architect is unknown, as are the first people who live there. Over the years, the cabin has had many caretakers and has hosted many events. But in the field around the cabin, nothing has been built. There are no benches, no paved pathways, no bridges over the streams. When people gather here, which they only seem to do for large events, they bring their own chairs or blankets. And while Weeping Cedars has resisted building anything permanent near the cabin, one of its most enduring edifices was nevertheless constructed there. On June 10th, 1888, a 15-year-old girl's body was found outside of the cabin, laying in the grass near Bierce Avenue. Her face had undergone some kind of traumatic contortion, but otherwise there were no marks on her body. And of all the potential outcomes of an event this unusual, the most important, unlikely as it may seem, is a conflict that has raged within the heart of Weeping Cedars for over 130 years. A conflict that began with the mysterious death of Anna Holler. This is Weeping Cedars, a weekly documentary about the history of a small town in northern Hamilton County, New York. We are telling its story week by week from the archives of the Weeping Cedars Historical Society. Our show is presented by Kay Millport and me, Lee Mitchell. Since we completed our second season, multiple things have come to light. And, almost without exception, they all point to the death of this young woman, a brilliant 15-year-old girl whose genius for engineering enthralled her tutor, Johannes Gelling, and challenged the prejudices of her day. Riley and Lee covered a portion of Haller's life in the episode Three Stories in Season 1 noting how her death spurred on several events throughout Weeping Cedar's history. Some were tragic, and others fascinating. But we believe that Anna's death was more than merely one domino in a line of mundane events.
Having received and translated Anna's journal, as well as having read and researched much of what is in Weeping Cedars from 1742 to the present, we have concluded that we missed something massive. Anna's death has been understood as not merely the spur that sent ordinary lives galloping off into new and unforeseen directions, but as an act of self-sacrifice, one that helped to change the community circle's very character and to establish their nemesis, the Green Hill Society. It's worth reviewing what we already know about Anna Holler. Born on April 14, 1873, Anna's mother died three weeks after Anna's birth. She was raised by her father, Terence, and by her two older brothers, Joseph and Timothy. When she turned 13, she met Johannes Gelling, who was 18 at the time. He began tutoring her, and near the end of her life, she, her father, and Gelling all agreed that when she turned 18, she and Gelling would be formally betrothed to be married, and that Gelling would use his influence to get her accepted into an engineering program. Their hope, it seemed, was that they would marry after Anna completed her studies in her early 20s. All of these plans were cut off, however, when she was found dead on June 10, 1888. Gelling would go on to become a prominent architect, building both the Angel's Bridge, which he dedicated to Anna's memory, and the underground sections of Weeping Cedars that we covered in our last episode. What we also knew was that Anna's death had inspired the formation of the Green Hills Society, though we weren't sure how. When uh, Joseph and Timothy Haller uh, founded the uh, Green Hill Society, uh, they did so with the purpose of preventing deaths like Anna's from happening again. However, it was uh, never entirely clear what that meant, as uh, no real cause for her death was uh, ever declared. But saying that there was no official cause of death declared for Anna isn't the same as saying that they weren't widely accepted theories. They certainly were, at least among some groups. But the people who had these theories also knew that they sounded mad, or dangerous, or both. So, they used coded language to refer to Anna and her death. And this coded language became a kind of quasi-religious way of talking about what happened to a young girl one hot summer evening in the waning years of the 19th century. The story we are about to tell has been told in Weeping Cedars time and time again among a small group of people who revere Anna's life and sacrifice through the symbols of a story told by Margaret Cross. This is the story of Anna Haller, a young girl known amongst those dedicated to her memory as Rachel. Anna or Rachel's journal is not what you would expect from a young woman from the 19th century if your expectations were set by Jane Austen. She was more a combination of Anne Shirley, Thomas Aquinas, and Marie Curie than she was an Elizabeth Bennet. Anna's thoughts are a complication of math, social inquisitiveness, and theological speculation. Clearly influenced by both the universalism and deism of her day, she proposed ideas in her private writings that suggested that God was both farther and nearer than any particular church service might have suggested. She writes... If God is so beyond human thought, how is it that he might come so close as to not just wear but be human flesh? Unless, of course, the long work of nature, as proposed by Mr. Darwin, 
was to fashion for the Creator a suitable seat for His glory, a face that could smile with divine joy and could weep with divine sorrow. How else should the impassable become passable? What a mystery! That the impassable should take on the passable and come close so that he and I might be kindred. That, that was written by a 14-year-old in German. And theology wasn't even her main topic. Her explorations and engineering and social conundrums also filled much of her journal. She wondered at social niceties and contemplated her father's insistence on privacy when he endured great sorrow. This last confused her greatly, as he insisted that she should always come to him or one of her brothers if she was in trouble, but he would lock himself away to weep in loneliness. It's also worth noting that on the day that she met Johannes Gelling, she wrote the following. I mark this day with a white stone. Huzzah for me. Three cheers for Lady Heller. The entries after this, which mention Gelling, are a combination of romantic musings, frustrated corrections of his ideas, and long extrapolations of their conversations. But in the year leading up to her death, Anna's contemplations became more and more focused on a single topic. She had had a dream that she became obsessed with. In the dream, she sees a tree in a walled garden and at the gate stood a flaming angel. The tree, laden with forbidden fruit, stands alone, and the angel wards off those who come searching for it, but then the angel disappears, and the tree is unguarded. A figure opens the gate, steps in, and plucks the fruit. Anna's description of what happens next is worth recounting. When the fruit left the tree and was grasped in his hand, all color left the world. From the ground a keening rose, a wailing for something lost and a light extinguished. The wall cracked and I saw beyond it a towering and expansive shadow whose spires and parapets loomed over the garden like a hunched and hungry giant. The tall, robed figure left the little plot of land a wasted and haunted place, returning to the great lurking darkness. And there I saw him deposit the fruit amongst many others to feed upon its secret knowledge until the stars should die away. The pictures are clearly drawn from the book of Genesis, the uh, Garden of Eden. But uh, after Adam and Eve have been thrown out, the angel stands at the gate, protecting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is at least the uh, most obvious interpretation, but there are difficulties with this reading. In uh, Ms. Haller's dream, the angel leaves his post, and a few days after she had the dream, she rejects this interpretation, saying, the tree isn't a tree at all, for its roots were clad in irons. Well, as uh, far as symbols and metaphors go, uh, it's a tricky one. Anna became obsessed with the dream and with understanding who the robed figure was. And if you're screaming at your phone or computer right now, hoping that we've made the connections, we have. Over the last three years, there have been numerous mentions of this hooded figure. 
And there have been times when we've written it off as fantasy, paranoia, delusion, or even just a representation of the ever-lurking specter of death that seems to hang over weeping cedars. We can't be certain that every mention of a robed or hooded person in our research points to this same figure, but we've passed the point of thinking that they are all unrelated. Anna's obsession with the robed man became the central topic of the last year of her life. Of particular interest is her entry on June 10, 1887, a month after her dream. She wrote, He is trying to get in. And the tree? Whatever it is, it fills him. It turns in its slumber and its fear and horror awaking. His dreaming madness woke within our whole town yesterday. I cannot stand to think what will happen if the road man should meet him. This was Anna's interpretation of the riot that set off this entire investigation. And, although the riot slips quickly into Weeping Cedar's memory black hole, Anna adds it to her contemplations over the next year, returning to it time and again. Her obsession with the robed figure and with the symbol of the tree and what might happen if the two were allowed to meet woke in her both a resolve and a plan. Anna contemplated the nature of the robed figure and wrote that she had been shown, in her words, like Dame Julian several shoeings. Uh, that is a reference to uh, Lady Julian of Norwich, a religious woman of the fourteenth uh, and fifteenth uh, centuries who had visions of Jesus. Like Lady Julian, Anna believed that uh, she had three visions. The first uh, was her and Johannes marrying and uh, living together far from Weepensidus. But in the vision, uh, she knew that the town and its people were, and I quote, a blighted shadow on the land. In the... Uh, Second vision, uh, she walked the streets of a dark city, cold and alone, searching for something she had coveted for herself, but uh, which had been taken from her. And in the uh, third vision, a guide showed her uh, Golgotha, the place of uh, Christ's crucifixion. Her contemplation of these visions uh, seemed to drive her final months. She wrote uh, only a month before her death of that last vision. He did not look as I thought he would. Neither regal, nor noble, nor special in any way. He was a man I would not have regarded one I would have passed by without notice. He hung from his cross naked, a poor figure with no hint of divinity about him. His breathing laboured, his face bloodied, he looked at me with one swollen eye shut, and I heard in my heart a voice so quiet that I strained to attend to it. But though it was so still, its words pierced me and showed me what must be done and that I must walk the same path, though I am unworthy in every way. And those words have remained with me each day as I see my fellows walking to and fro on the streets. Again and again, 
it turns in my head in that rough, laborer's voice. In this way, the world is made new. Anna's life seemed, in those last few months, to be racing towards what she understood to be a confrontation. Whatever it was that uh, she was moving toward, uh, she clearly understood it within a uh, biblical and theological framework. It's uh, not difficult to see where she got some of her ideas, of course. We know that her brothers were deeply interested in theological writings, especially those of uh, George MacDonald. And uh, during the uh, 19th century, there was a fairly hearty interest in uh, spiritualism and occult knowledge, uh, thanks largely to the influence of Swedenborg in the uh, prior century. In fact, uh, Anna perhaps has more in common with Swedenborg than with anyone else that we've discussed so far. What is also clear is that Anna, using the crucifixion as her framework, was not expecting to survive whatever her encounter was. When she wrote the last entry in her journal on June 10th, 1888, she wrote the line we read last season. My name is Anna Holler, and this is my last entry. I will die tonight. He sees me now. It seems certain now that she believed that she was going to confront the robed figure and that she wouldn't leave that meeting alive. The remainder of that journal entry is written for her brothers. It gives instructions that they should work to set a ward and watch about the town. She makes her farewells to her brothers and her father, and the last three lines that Anna wrote are heartbreaking. To Johannes, I give all of my heart. I bid you live a worthy life for I now try with what little is in me to die a worthy death. May we meet when the world is made again, and all shadows have been cast away. We don't know what came next for Anna, except that some hours after that journal entry was written, her disfigured body would be found. Her father would be roused from his sleep, and her brothers would be found at a dance held at Margaret Cross's home. An investigation would follow with no real suspects and no arrests. In 1910, an investigator named Reginald, or Ronald Weldweed, would come to town to investigate Anna's death. Nothing would come of that investigation, as far as we can tell. Interestingly, however, this private investigator's younger brother would move to Weeping Cedars 21 years later to set up shop in the streets below. We know a little more now than we did in the first season because of the book that Bernadette gave us. It names Reldweed and it identifies where the Haller brothers were at the time of Anna's death. But it also gives us less straightforward information, information that suggests that the author either had access to or knew the tradition from Anna's journal. It's uh, not exactly right to call Weepin' Cedars uh, from 1742 to the present a history uh, in the modern sense. It reads more like Herodotus or Suetonius, full of unlikely explanations and rumours. It is clear that for Cartwright, the mythologies of Weepin' Cedars 
uh, both out of the circle and of the Green Hill Society, were extremely compelling and powerful. He doesn't see absolutely everything that happens in the town's history as connected to these uh, mythical interpretations. But it's fair to say that for him, the supernatural is his primary lens for the uh, area's history. For Ulysses Cartwright, who wrote the book after leaving the circle, or inner circle, or community circle, whatever you want to call it, he understood himself as leaving a destructive, subservient association and entering a group that fought for goodness. He relates the origin of that group, the Green Hills Society, with an entire chapter dedicated to Anna Holler and her brothers. He relates how Anna was plagued with dreams of a figure that he usually calls the robed man. He goes on to claim that she confronted this figure in a place he calls the Dark Below Gleason, and that her death formed a kind of protection against the robed man. And then, then he makes a claim perhaps wilder than any other in his whole book. And believe me, there are some pretty wild claims here. Ulysses Cartwright claimed that after her death, Anna appeared to her brothers and her father. She related to them what must be done to keep weeping cedars safe by creating what he calls wardings. He doesn't relate what these wardings are or how they were made. He only says, And upon Joseph and Belinda, she laid a special burden against the enemy, a burden that has now passed on to another couple. It's extremely hard to know what to make of all of this. It seems clear that Ulysses Cartwright believed what he was writing. It also seems extremely likely, from what we've read from other people involved in both the GHS and the community circle, that they had at least compatible worldviews. What isn't clear is precisely how the circle understood itself, what the change was within its rank in the late 19th century, and what its xenophobia had to do with its mission. Cartwright doesn't really delve into the philosophies and motivations of the movement that he ties closely to the big three families. However, he points to the moment when the smallpox epidemic hit as the point when they began their work together. The book ends in 1923, the year it was published. In that same year, Ulysses Cartwright partnered with two people to form the Weeping Cedars Arcade of the Arts. The first was Melvin Holler. Joseph and Belinda Holler's son, and Anna's posthumous nephew. The second was a man named Sheldon Bombauer. Sheldon and his wife Gertrude had a son named Michael, who married Dorothy Holler, whose journal we read in season two. There is so much to unpack. The Hollers and the Bombauers were joined by common work and marriage across generations. So does that mean that the people we've been dealing with are really the haulers? Does that even mean anything? Or are we so removed from all of this decades later that none of it is really relevant anymore? Honestly, that doesn't seem likely. The connection between the haulers and the bombowers helps to shed light on some of the questions we've asked during this series. But of course, it raises others. If the GHS is the society aimed at protecting weeping cedars, why isn't the Bombauer family involved in it? And as far as we can tell, the last time they were associated at all with the GHS was the early 60s. And what is it that they want? Why have they given us the materials they have? What are they hoping to achieve? We don't have the answers to these questions. 
All we have now is one narrative, a framework that we are struggling with. And, of the potential theories that we've thrown at the wall, this one, well, it's hard to actually say out loud because it's patently insane. But after some of our own experiences in Weeping Cedars, it seems, well, it seems like the most likely truth to us, the theory that answers the most variables in our equation. And, maybe, there are two ways of understanding how this theory works the best out of everything we've seen. The first is that we now know the controlling myth. And by understanding what that myth is, we can understand why people have done what they've done. At least a little better. We can begin to interpret people's actions through this lens of dark, supernatural powers trying to get into Weeping Cedars to get something that's hidden here. The other way, of course, is to take it all at face value. To not just see it as a motivating narrative, but instead as a real account of what has happened and perhaps what will continue to happen here. It feels like we switch back and forth between those two interpretations several times a day. Because we admit when you drive through the smoke and the darkness of Weeping Cedar streets, it feels like something is coming. And, well, there are the things we saw in the town below. We thought hard about how to end this series, seeing as it is likely the last thing that we will post about our work here. There are a lot of reasons for us to walk away from this at this point. Like we said, we can't speak for Kenzie or Claire, but Lee and I have followed this about as far as we're willing to. And we feel like we've reached a kind of conclusion. Or maybe the only kind of conclusion we could hope to find. So, we thought maybe it would be best to end with these words and to hand the questions off to you, the listener. Ulysses Cartwright's book ends with this line. The robed man. This Nehovnik is hunting for some way in. He wants the hidden thing, that ancient thing locked away here long ago. He is searching for it without rest. He will seek to undo what Rachel did, to unmake and reverse her sacrifice if possible. But wards have been set. Let all who read this book understand their duty. If a ward is reversed, a new one must be made. Stand fast. Be ready. And from Lee, Claire, Professor Larson, Kenzie, and wherever you are, Riley, I'm hoping you all stay safe. I'm Kay Millport, and this has been Weeping Cedars. This episode stars Laurel Johnson as Lee Mitchell, Narenda Pennington as Kay Millport, and Lou DePilla as Harvey Larson. It features the Weeping Cedars theme by Sebastian Gottlieb, Homeland Cassette by Urator, Tired of Life by Maidan, Finally Lost by Hinterheim, and Ending One by Montplacier. Weeping Cedars is written and edited by Joshua Wise. 
If you enjoy Weaving Cedars and want to discuss your latest theories and get links to the scripts for our show, please join our Discord. You can find that link as well as links to all of our social media at allportsopen.com slash weepingcedars. 